The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. I have a very exciting show for you today, and I'm so glad uh, that you are listening I know sometimes those of us in uh, the trenches in the museum world feel that we, the work we do maybe isn't making a difference or we feel that, that uh, the problems in our community are too large for us to uh, make a big difference or make an impact or perhaps there isn't enough funding to do the project that we really want to do. Well, I believe that once you have heard the story of um, my guest today, you will never, ever believe those uh, things again. And you will know that with the right perseverance and the right mission that anything is possible. My guest today is Rama Lakshmi who is a correspondent with the Washington Post Indian Bureau, and she is also a museum studies graduate and a trained oral historian. Today, Rama is going to be talking to us about the work that she has done uh, in creating the Remember Bhopal Museum that opened just this past December, on December 2nd, 2014, on the 30-year anniversary of the world's largest chemical disaster. Uh, the museum recounts the events that took place on that day more when more than 500,000 residents were exposed to toxic gas and other chemicals leaked from the Union Carbide pesticide plant. But as Rama a, will explain to us, this museum is not meant as a static memorial, or as Elaine Gurian calls them, bad news museums. But this is an essential contribution to the dialogue in a democratic society and truly a healing presence in uh, Bhopal in India today. Rama, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. It's it's lovely to be on your show. Well, thank you. Rama, could you, I've only given you the briefest of introductions. Could you share with our audience a little bit about your career trajectory and particularly the previous experiences you have had with uh, museums, both in the United States and in India? 
Um, as you mentioned, I'm a journalist. That's my bread and butter. Uh, but um, I'm trained in museum studies and oral history. So I bring a lot of storytelling elements um, and my understanding of the present into my museum work. Um, so I don't really see my journalism or my museum work in strict silos. Uh, I understand community struggles, social histories and social struggles, social justice issues. And I try to see if my museum interests can also reflect those understandings. So the insight I bring into my museums is often something that I draw from my journalism work and my travel, journalistic travel. Having said that, um, in the United States, I have worked with the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis and the Smithsonian Native American Museum in Washington, D.C. I've um, done a few projects for them. In the Missouri History Museum, I worked on an exhibition that uh, curated the disability rights movement in the Midwest. Um, looking at it, as if uh, you would curate the civil rights movement. Um, and I did a lot of oral histories, tried to identify objects of the last 100 years, who has the objects relating to his, um, disability, um, what were the first slogans that came about in the disability movement, uh, what was the language, what were the institutions associated with the movement. At the Smithsonian uh, Native American Museum, I worked on an many people do not talk, the mainstream Native Americans don't really talk about or haven't talked about for a very long time and how that community survived, sustained its culture, its mixed culture and what were the ways in which they kept it alive. Um, so these were two of the uh, projects that I worked on uh, in the United States and in India I have consulted with the National Museum of India and the Rail Museum in New Delhi and have done some art consultancy as well. Um, my particular interest is um, social struggles, social movements, because that's what I was trained in in the United States. And that is a big gaping hole in Indian museum landscape. Nobody wants to talk about difficult issues in India. So those are the um, stories I would like to see in museums. And I try and bring storytelling elements and enhancing communication and visitor experience in my museum work in India. So this is really what I bring to my museum work in India. Wonderful. That's a very good uh, and wonderful explanation. And, and clearly, there is uh, quite a continuum of your uh, journalism uh, tendencies and, and uh, your your desire for social activism and uh, dialogue. Uh, and that's very, very clear. Could you help our audience understand a little bit more about Indian India's current museum culture? Um, sure. Um the very early um, um, movement for collection of objects were by royal families in India. They were called Ajayab Ghars, where the royal families, the kings and queens, they collected artifacts, uh, paintings, and they were rarely um, displayed for public, but they were elitist institutions. They were not called museums. They were called Ajayab Ghars, and they were mostly collections. Uh, storehouses and collections which were to be enjoyed by uh, and relished by the elites. The museum institution in its modern avatar was born during the British colonial era. Um, so when the colonial archaeologists went around the country, went around um, uh, India digging for artifacts, historical artifacts, 
The museum institution as we know it today was born out of a debate that took place around that time where they said, should we store these artifacts in India or should we ship them back to Britain to display them in our museums as stories of our colonies? So this was a very um, animated debate uh, that took place in India around that time. And out of this came out the early origins of the Indian Museum in its modern, um, uh, modern, modern avatar. And so the early impulse of in Indian Museum was that of a storehouse. Where should we keep these artifacts as safekeeping? Um, uh, upon independence, when, we got, when India got independence in 1947, the British colonizers left. India used its history museums to create an idea of a newly born independent republic. It, um, the museum was seen, uh, the history museum especially, was seen as central to the nation building project. Um, there were two goals. One was to showcase its rich cultural pride, cultural history. So the, it was about projection of culture. So it was about showcasing. The other one was to forge a sense of unity after the British colonizers had left. Um, so there were these diverse cultures, uh, diverse languages, community groups. It all had to be brought together and you had to weave a single garland of culture, as it were, which was called India. And what better way to do that than the History Museum? So in the grand... And in this grand retelling of, say, Indian history and what India is, what the idea of India was, the difficult stories, the troubling stories of Indian history were left out. And this was deliberately left out. It was no accident. There was no space, for instance, in Indian history museums about stories of caste, which is like the fundamental social fault line, fundamental cleavage in Indian society that goes back uh, 3,500 years, um, there, there's hardly any mention of the caste system in Indian history museums because it was a troubling one, because it's a difficult story, because it is not something that um, that you can showcase with pride. There was no space for uh, marginalized communities. While this kind of a curatorial ideology you can is understandable in the first two decades after independence because it was a new nation, it's now... Almost seven decades, our independence is now almost seven decades. And yet our museums continue in that same template of showcasing cultural pride. So th there is a, sh a hole in the Indian History Museum. And that hole uh, is basically one where there is no mention of social fault lines. There's no mention of difficult subjects. There's nothing about social struggles current or past. So this is the absence that I'm obsessed with. What is absent in the Indian um, um, museum landscape? The other problem I've had with Indian history museums especially is that it freezes the past. There is no connection between the present and the past. There's no, um, they're, they're seen as silos. You, you, you freeze the history and it's something that happened long ago. I'm not going to build a bridge between your present and the past that I'm showcasing. Um, uh, so I believe in the process theory. Things are the way they are today because they have come to be that way. They've got to be that way. Uh, and only when you build those bridges between the past and the present can we make sense of our decisions, our life choices, our community stories, 
and the consequences. And that is missing in our museums. Well, that has been great, Rama, and a very helpful way of understanding the context for your uh, for the Bhopal Museum. But before we get into uh, that discussion, we're going to take a brief break, and uh, when we come back, we will hear more about Rama's work on the Bhopal Museum. So be sure to stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today I have as my guest Rama Lakshmi, who was the uh, developer and creator of the Bhopal uh, Museum commemorating the uh, Bhopal uh, disaster that happened almost, uh, well, happened more than 30 years ago. So, Rama, uh, 
right before the break, we, you gave us a really good uh, introduction about the uh, the Indian uh, museum culture, so to speak. So, uh, could you tell us how did the idea for a museum to commemorate Bhopal uh, come about? Um, sure. Um, in two thousand five, uh, the government in um, Bhopal. Um, had a national competition among architects. They wanted to build a grand commemorative memorial at the factory site of the Union Carbide factory. Uh, it's, it, right now, the, the factory was abandoned after the disaster, and there's a court case that's going on both in United States and in India, and um, it's been closed for visitors, uh, you need special permission to visit the site because it's still contaminated. Um, but the government said we want to build a memorial. So they had this national uh, uh, bid and several architectural firms bid for that project. And they zeroed in on a New Delhi-based architect firm called Space Matters. And they wanted to build this grand memorial there. The, so many survivor groups who've been fighting for justice and higher compensation and environmental remediation of that site and in the neighborhoods around the factory, said the government has no moral right to build a memorial or a museum in that site. Now, I reached Bhopal in 2009 to write a story as a journalist, to write a story about the 25th year anniversary of the Bhopal gas tragedy. And during my interviews, many survivor groups and activists talked about this memorial plan that the government had. And they said the government should not build it. And I said, why not? And they said, because the government is complicit in the injustice. One was the corporate injustice and the corporate crime. And then the other was the government didn't pay us money, didn't uh, harass us, hasn't given us all um, uh, enough rehabilitation um, packages, hasn't taken care of our health. Uh, this We are into our third generation and children are still being born with all kinds of ailments, um, disability, cancer. Um, so... Uh, the government is complicit. They have no moral right. Now, as a museologist, as you would know, the moral right to remember is, is a very deep one. And uh, it's something that you often think about. Who, who tells the story? Whose story is it? And who has the wherewithal? Who has the resources to tell the story? And what happens to the story? So uh, in, in my conversation, uh, they started talking about only the survivors have the right to tell that story. But the survivors are poor activists. They are um, citizens who live in uh, poor neighborhoods there. Uh, they do not have uh, the state resources to build this grand memorial. And that's when they said in 2004, which was the 20th anniversary, they had built, they had not built, but they had mounted a small exhibition, a temporary exhibition, called Yade Hatsa, which means memory of trauma. And they had basically, at that time, there was no curator, there was nobody, it was just survivors. They went around several homes, knocked on the doors of people who had lost somebody in the family in that disaster and said, do you have any object that reminds you of that person? Simple question they asked, family to family. They collected about 20, 25 objects. They put it on a rectangular table, 
they did not hang it on walls. They put it on a rectangular table right next to the portrait of that person. So all you had was the name of the person, the portrait, and right next to them was the object of memory. So a child's sweater, uh, a child's milk bottle, um, somebody's sari, um, somebody's sewing machine. Um, and this was kept on, on the table. So as survivors, when they opened this exhibition, the survivors had to walk around the table and not along the wall like you would in a traditional museum. And this exhibition uh, was there for about eight to nine months. That was in 2004. So in 2009, they said, you know, we even, even we collected some objects. So I, that was news to me. So I said, show me some of these objects. And they started bringing it out. They put it away in the attic and uh, in rat infested uh, uh, moss ridden attics and shelves so they started bringing out one artifact after another and that's when my involvement started I said look if you ever want to do a museum of your own I have the skill and interest to help you with this um, I'll have to take permission from my editors but this is something I can help you with and that's how the conversation began in 2009 and um, I started working on it in 2010 after several rounds of brainstorming on what kind of museum we wanted of course from the very beginning in my mind I knew that in 2004, that, um, that temporary exhibition that the survivors themselves erected was um, with the goal of remembering. It was more like a homage. It was, it was about remembering the people who had gone away. The museum that I had in mind that came out of the conversation I had with the activists and survivors was it should remember but also remind. Because one of the key slogans of the movement the social movement for justice there, is no more Bhopal. So it's, it's almost like, you know, we, we want to remind, but we also want to ensure that there is, this never happens again, almost uh, deterrent commemoration. And that's one thing I wanted to weave into the museum. So that's how the conversation really began. Interesting. Can you share your approach that you use to develop the storylines and content? Sure. Um, I'm, a, as I said, I'm a trained oral historian. So I often approach these projects, not like a traditional academic curator. I don't look at the object first and then start digging for stories. Because I work with community groups, because I work with um, social struggles and um, marginalized groups, um, you know, their stories are important because the stories are the ones that are stifled or, or kept away from mainstream, um, his, by, by mainstream historians. So I try and dig for objects, artifacts through stories. So um, I conducted about 55 oral histories uh, with, uh, uh, with survivors, family members of uh, victims, uh, with um, with eyewitnesses, with doctors, with forensic doctors, police officials, um, administrative officials at that time, uh, with with a photographer of that time, with um, activists who continue to work. So during these three to four hour oral history interviews, I would locate uh, what what is important for them in their story, and. Through those interviews, I found, oral history interviews, I found what was important. What is the story they want to tell? Because this is a co-curated community museum. It is not something that an outside curator comes and curates. This, this 
they had to own this museum. This was their story. This museum would have restored the voice that the tragedy had taken away 30 years ago to the community. So through those stories, I identified objects. The other thing, other um, approach I had was it should not just be a pity museum. It should not be a museum where you visit and you come out saying, oh, that's really sad, that's a pity, these are poor victims. No, because the Bhopal movement is, is almost like an inspiration for many environmental movements across India because of the tactics they have used, because of the feisty um, sloganeering and uh, strategies that they have employed. So it, the museum had to showcase the journey, the journey of the survivors from victims to warriors almost. So it had to inspire as well. So it should not just be about what happened that night and how bad it was, how traumatic it was and how people are still suffering, but also about how they're fighting the fight. And the other thing was that this museum was going to be a tool for activism, a resource center for the survivors and activists. And, and also something that the third and the fourth generation could go to, to understand, to, um, to re-energize themselves. And the final goal of it was to create a template. If the state government wants to build a memorial slash museum in that site, then we want to build one before them and show them that if the survivors had control, this is the kind of storytelling we would do in that museum. So we were almost trying to create a template for the government. So these were some of the goals with which um, uh, I approached the museum curation process. Is there an object or story that particularly stands out for you? Um, the very first room that you enter, when, when you enter Remember Hopal Museum, the very first room is, uh, is all black because the tragedy took place a few minutes after midnight. And when the gas came out, people just ran. They were suffocated. Their eyes um, were burning they were, uh, and they were throwing up. Uh, many pregnant women gave birth to, you know, they just miscarried as they were running. Many of them ran towards the, um, the in the direction of the gas. So it, it was complete pandemonium. It was complete panic and pandemonium that night. And it was, it was claustrophobia. So what we have done in the first room is, the first room deals with what happened that night. So the ceiling is black, the walls are black, everything is black. And we have used black and white photographs. And even on the ceiling, we've got pictures of people who, some of the pictures of people who died that night, but um, their portraits when they were alive. So it's almost like if you look up at the ceiling, they're looking down at you. So you can never, while you're in that room, you can never really escape their eyes and their gaze. And there are industrial pipes running on, along the ceiling. So you know as soon as you enter that this is something that happened in the night and this is an industrial tragedy. And right at the center of that room is the blockbuster object, which is that of an infant, a one-and-a-half-year-old infant called Shajid. And his sweater, his pink sweater, um, Shajid died in his mother's arms that night as he as she ran along with the family members and it took her several hours to even realize in fact several days because she kept running and then she lost consciousness and then she was told in the hospital that the child had died in her arms that very night she didn't even realize it so um she so that is like 
the main or central object in that room. Um, there is a picture of the child. There's a picture of the mother, and there's a picture of that child right on top of that object display board. So the child is looking down at you. You're listening. You press the button. You pick up the phone, and you're listening to the mother's voice as she relates that story of that night and how dear that child was for her. And you're looking at the tattered pink sweater. Now that is very very powerful. And in the same display case, we have used. Um, um what we call um uh, uh, um a chisel that a forensic doctor had given to us the forensic doctor had used chisel and hammer to break open the skulls that those few days the first few days and that chisel is an artifact because the number of dead people was coming so overwhelming he didn't have time to do proper postmortem so that display case has the child sweater and a chisel now that is one of the most moving objects for me um, and and of course there is there are these rusting remains of um, a chain and broken locks that the third generation of survivors had used to t- lock themselves outside the prime minister's office about six years ago. So, you know, one is the object of memory and one is the object of protest, the protest artifacts, as it were. So I have used many objects from the protest as well. So these are some of my favorite objects. Oh, those are all very, very powerful. Uh, and I'm... I understand as well that you really worked hard to use only natural materials and stay away from all of the chemicals that, of course, were uh, the start of this tragedy. Oh, yes. Um, the, the medium and the message had to be the same. Uh, we could not use toxic material in a museum that, that tells the story of a movement, which is against uh, toxic factories. Um, so, you know, we, we could, we couldn't use many of the chemicals. We couldn't use some of the paints, um, uh, which in fact, some of the paints and some of the material had Dow chemicals products in them. So we had to keep, stay away from those. We could not use flex. We could not use, um, anything plastic. Um, so that obviously, um, increased our budget. Um, some of the objects, we still haven't figured out how to preserve them because many of the chemicals that traditional museums use in India and probably abroad um, have um, have some of the chemicals that we want to avoid, uh, some of the mater- harmful materials we want to avoid. In fact, many of them are made by Dow chemicals. So this was a complete strict no-no for the survivors and the activists in Bhopal. So um, we have still to figure out some traditional herbal way of preserving some of the objects that have not been displayed. Um, so that is also a big challenge for us. Um, so this obviously increased our budget. And and you must you must remember the the survivors did not take a single rupee from the government because the government is complicit did not take a single rupee 
from any of the corporations, not just Dow Chemicals or Union Carbide, but any of the corporations because they think this is a corporate crime and there is no way they would take money from any of the corporations. Again, that meant uh, we had to rely on small donations of individual donations um, in India and United States and UK and some uh, anti-pesticide uh, NGOs around the world. Um, so initially, uh, we had thought uh, we had planned for a traveling museum that would go to other sites of environmental struggle, taking the Bhopal story around the country. Um, that would have cost us about $93,000. But eventually, we could only raise one third of that money. And we had to scale down some of our uh, grand um, proposals and ideas and we settled for a non-traveling museum uh, we did not have land so we have rented space uh, not too far from the rusting remains of the union carbide factory and we've rented space and it's um, it's a stationary museum and it was built in one third of that price of that original budget well this is an incredibly uh, impactful story and uh, on all fronts and I want to hear more about the reactions that you have received but before that we are going to take our second break and when we come back more with Rama Lakshmi and the wonderful and inspiring story of the Bhopal Museum. So we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. 
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Lots of people talk about publishing their work but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print, and that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I have been having a very wonderful and uh, inspiring conversation with Rama Lakshmi today uh, and telling us the, uh, the history and the story of the uh, Bhopal Museum. And Rama, before we went on break, you were saying how you 
had to change your plan so that it became a smaller site-specific museum instead of a traveling museum. However, it sounds as if it has had a significant impact on the community. What has been the reaction to the museum since it opened? Um, A lot of poor people, a lot of poor people have come into the museum. Um, As soon as it opened, of course, in the first couple of days, um, it was predominantly the survivor community that came to the museum. And all we saw and heard was just people crying and weeping and leaving. the. Some of them left the museum because they couldn't finish seeing the whole thing. Some of them left just after they spent about half an hour in that black room, the first room that I described, because it was too much for them. And they were reminded of the past. Um, some of them saw the whole museum and they came away saying this is too much it's all come back in front of my eyes and I can't deal with it so many of them weeping and many of them coming and seeing their own objects their family objects of the people that uh, had passed away so it was it was a very difficult um, first few days what surprised us was many casual walk-ins by Poor people in the neighborhood, like the rickshaw driver, the taxi driver, um, the cleaners in the neighborhood, somebody who was washing dishes, uh, someone who lived in the slum nearby. Not directly survivors, but they they came in because they said, oh, we heard that something about the gas has opened and this is a story we are familiar with. Some said, oh, that's my story or that's the story I'm familiar with. That's the story I've heard from my friend, my neighbor. So there was a sense of ownership and they were curious. And in all the interviews we did with these people, they had never visited any other museum in the city before. So this was really their first museum visit. And uh, although there are many museums and some really beautiful museums in that city, they had never found the time or had the interest to visit those. They felt that this is something they could relate to. So the museum is almost in some ways, spawning a museum-going culture, if I can call it, among certain section of the people. The other interesting thing was many of these poor people and survivors, they took off their shoes before they entered the museum. There is no sign there that says take off your shoes, but they just took it off because they felt this is something like a homage. This is like a place where which tells the stories of the dead. But many of the more affluent people, the middle class people who came to the museum, they wore the shoes and they went right in. Um, So, again, it's not something that we had instructions on, but this was just something that we noticed in their behavior. Um, uh, The other thing is the city is deeply divided within the new, um, uh, you know, between the new Bhopal and the old Bhopal narrative. Uh, Many of the people, the middle class and the affluent people think the city has been in the last 30 years defined by the tragedy and it's time to move on. Um, so every time the survivors hold protests and rallies around the city, they they don't always they know that injustice has been done. They know that there's a lot of pending issues, but they just want people to just move on, saying it's over, it's past, it's done with. Um, this museum is trying to address that move on narrative almost um, in in very interesting ways. Uh, school groups have come in and they have gone back to their classrooms and had conducted conversations in the classroom about a subject that is rarely talked about in the con- in the classrooms. And the teachers have piped in saying, "Oh yeah." 
we went through this or, uh, you know, we remember this tragedy and something the teachers have always lived through or known, but never discussed in classrooms. But because of their visit to the museum, the children are driving these conversations. The other thing is the government, the many of the government officials who keep the survivors and the activists at an arm's length are embracing the museum, um, which is very interesting because they themselves want a museum of their own. They're not looking at this as a challenge or as, as a, you know, as a, as um, as an, a cautionary note, they they embracing it very well. In fact, some of the government officials are coming and saying, "Oh, you know, so and so wants to donate this object. It would be very interesting for your museum to have it." They're actually helping us. Many of the government-run museums of the city have embraced uh, the Remember Bhopal Museum. They have taken some of the photographs from us, some of the um, uh, some of the text panels from us, and put it on their walls on Museum Day. So the museum. It's almost like a safe tool, safe vehicle, and in a very subtle and subversive manner, it's entering the narrative in ways that are non-threatening. Um, you know, it's entering spaces where, say, the survivors and the activists and their slogans never entered before. And the museum is um, it's almost seen as a safe institution to visit, for, even for the government officials. And as soon as you enter the museum, on the walls of the museum, I must uh, point out here, you have slogans, protest slogans that have been chanted in the movement for 30 years. So it's very much an unsafe space. Uh, if you, As soon as you enter, you hear, you actually see museum wall graffiti which has got anti-state, anti-government slogans. So in spite of all that, the museum is being embraced by some of the most unlikeliest of people and departments, which has been very surprising for us. I, I can imagine. How has the museum's presence influenced discussions uh, throughout the country about the role that museums can play in democratic societies? Um, it ha- I, I would not say it has generated a nationwide debate or discussion. Um, I, uh, that's, too, uh, that's too big an impact and it, we're just five months old. But in the, gener- in the conversations and discussions it has generated, um, there is conversation among other social movements across India. Uh, there are conversations taking place in other environmental struggles. They're also looking at, I have received personally many calls uh, from other movements uh, and their protagonists and their activists saying, we too want a museum. Um, And um, which is important because many of the uh, movements don't really see themselves as museums. And I must go back to my first point about nation building and democracy. While many of our government run museums Um, had nation building and patriotic nation building as a central piece, um, a central piece of the museum project. I think this museum, remember Bhopal Museum, also contributes to the same narrative, except who has the right to build nation? Who has the right to contribute to the idea of India? Not just the state, but the people, the communities, the most marginalized communities. They too have a stake in shaping what what is defined as patriotism. Um, And, you know, it's important, especially because this museum comes at a time when there are unprecedented, unprecedented political, economic, social transformation that India is undergoing right now as the economy expands, foreign investments coming in. There's a massive manufacturing uh, drive, an industrial drive, industrial expansion. 
And Bhopal is a story that refuses to go away. And unless and until you really fix Bhopal, uh, the whole conversation about economic growth, unbridled industrial expansion cannot be um, addressed. And in a, mu- in a government, in a democracy, arguments, social, political, economic arguments are central in a democracy. So who conducts that argument and how that argument is conducted is central. And until now, I would say museums have stayed away, kept away from the arguments that are raging on the streets uh, in India. And this would be, I would say, one of the first, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say the first or maybe one of the first attempts to make the museum institution enter that argument and enter the democracy project. Very interesting. So I understand that you have a couple of uh, other projects on the horizon. Can you share those with us? Sure. Um, I have three goals. <laughs> the first one is the Bhopal Museum, which took four years to create. Uh, the second one is um, uh, to, to curate a, a museum, create a museum, um, which tells the story of 20-year battle social movement that brought about the right to information, the dramatic right to information law in 2005. So the 20 years that preceded 2005, how was the battle fought in the rural areas for minimum wages, for pensions, for against corruption, every day endemic corruption so those battles the foot soldiers of that movement have to be commemorated and remembered so that's my second which is on the right to information law the third one which i think is the final one in my trilogy uh, would be about the caste system some of the anti-caste movement um, uh, and social struggles around caste uh, that need to be commemorated in museums there is no museum right now that tells the story of caste so that will be my third uh all of those are wonderful, and I'm, I know that there are many uh, listeners out there are, who are emerging museum professionals or um, just beginning their museum studies. Uh, two questions, perhaps, you can share with them. One, um, how could they get involved with you on one of these other projects? Um, I'm always looking for more hands because all this is pro bono work for me and I work on weekends and vacations uh, or any time that my journalism career can give me. So I'm always, always looking for people to come and help. In Bhopal specifically, we're looking for student exchange programs. We're looking for museum um, undergrads, museum graduate students who want to come and intern in a difficult museum that's just born and that's struggling and that's um, that's trying to do as much outreach program as possible. Um, we are always looking for internships. So if people want to come and spend a couple of months, do time-bound projects at the Remember Popal Museum, we welcome that. The next is if somebody wants to come and spend time with me uh, while I'm doing the curatorial work for my next museum on Right to Information, which is a, which is a very important transparency law in Indian democracy, uh, I'd, I'd be very happy to you know, have more hands working with me. So it's all a pro bono project, and more hands, the better. That's fabulous. And uh, uh, Rama's contact information will be on the guest page at uh, the Museum Life web- website. So if you're interested, this would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I would encourage at- 
anyone listening uh, to take the time and participate in this very important project with this very inspirational museum professional. Rama, the other question that I am sure some of our uh, listeners are wondering about is what advice would you give or can you give uh, young professionals interested in pursuing a museum career, especially in India? Especially in India. Um, I guess three things. One is, if you're working in a history museum, never forget to drag the past into the present. Otherwise, it it becomes irrelevant for many of the visitors who come. And so you, you must never forget that you have to bridge and you have to look at some of the choices and decisions we are making today and how... Um, they are connected to our past. Um, so the museum have, museum cannot remain in this frozen silo. That's the first one. The second is the visitors want to feel engaged, want to contribute. Um, as a journalist, I know this is something that's become central to my journalism work, which is engaging the readers. The readers don't want to just passively read anymore. They want to contribute. They, they, everybody has an opinion. Everybody has information. So uh, the museums have to do the same. So, um, you know, as many ways as possible, try and leave some spaces fluid and open and dynamic for visitors to contribute. And the third one is we we understand the phrase museum learning in very narrow terms because we, we look at it as what museums can teach visitors. But I look at museum learning phrase as one where museums learn from the visitors. So every time we we measure museum education or museum learning, let's look at what the museum also learned from the muse- from the visitors. Let's have tangible ways of measuring that. That actually leads me to another question, Rama, and that is: uh, is there are there plans to do any kind of visitor uh, uh, evaluation or um, uh, interviews uh, once the museum's been open for a while to gain a better understanding, particularly of these uh, visitors, as you said, who this is their very first museum experience? I think it would be very insightful. Uh, we have already started doing that. Um, we're going to actually scale it up now. Uh, what we are doing is we are recording many of the people because many of them are unlettered, so we can't give them questionnaires questionnaires to fill out. So, um, and they, they're very poor people. They, you know, they work on a daily wage, so we can't take too much of their time to fill out forms or do question and answers. So we just record some of them and we ask them some questions: Have you come here before? What do you feel? And you know why this museum? Who told you about it? Where have you come from? Um, what memories do you have, or what stories do you already know about the disaster? So we're doing. We've been doing that on an informal basis. The museum in Bhopal is run by a caretaker who's actually from a survivor family. Now, just this month, we have engaged a professional as a manager as well. So um, from now, I think we will have a sustained evaluation program, a formal one that um, we're going to start. Well, that would be fabulous, and I think that that's also a way for other museum professionals, some evaluators I know. It sounds as if it is a research project uh, ready and willing. Uh, there's such a, a need for us to understand both the universality of museums and, and what we can apply from one culture to another, as well as their uniqueness. 
it seems to me that in in India today that there is a transformation of the uh, the museum culture, and it would be great to be at the forefront of seeing how that transition uh, works. Well, Rama, it has been a true pleasure in in hearing your story. Uh, I was completely engrossed, as my listeners know. I'm usually interrupting and and commenting much more, but I it was just such a compelling story. I wanted you to take the time to share it with us in your own words. As I said at the beginning of this program. Anyone uh, who listens to your story cannot help but feel inspired and uh, also having a feeling that museums can heal communities and transform individuals. And if you ever, if anyone ever forgets that, uh, I hope that they contact you or, or listen to this show again to get just a better, better reminder of the promise and potential and impact that our cultural institutions can have. Rama, thank you very, very much for being on the show today. I know it's very late in India, and I truly appreciate you arranging your schedule to be with us today. Thank you, Carol. Um, I really appreciate you calling me. I'm grateful that you gave me this opportunity to share this experience behind Remember Bhopal Museum. I hope more and more people come and visit. Well, I certainly have this on my life list uh, as well, and so thank you. And remember, uh, I always love hearing from my listeners. It was because of a listener, uh, my dear friend Gretchen Jennings, that uh, Rama was brought to my attention and this wonderful program was brought to yours. So please, please uh, contact me at carol.bossard at verizon.net or send me a tweet at at MuseWrite. I always love to hear what you have to say, what you're interested in, and what new issues we should be discussing on museum life. And so until next week, this is Carol Bossert. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.